in today's episode of Rob Conrad Conversations, Shannon Martinez. Had that party. Um, and when I woke up the next morning, uh, I looked at my underwear and I was like, okay, there's a little bit of blood because it was I had never had sex before. And then the story that I told myself and would continue to tell myself for almost the next 10 years was that I lost my virginity to two men at a party. I didn't lose my virginity to two men at a party. I was raped by two men at a party. A traumatic experience put her on a downward spiral. Then it was like, I mean, I was filled with rage. I didn't know where to put it. I didn't um, I didn't have anywhere to, to posit it. Um, and at the same time, there's this part of me that like I had this ever plummeting um, sense of worth or value. That led her into the depths of right-wing extremism. The angriest people in this already kind of like angry subculture um, were the skinhead. The rage and the anger in me like really resonated with that, that, you know, like seeks out like. I hated everything. I hated the whole world. I hated myself. So for me, taking the hatred and the self-hatred that I felt up and projecting it out onto specific groups of people was, it was not that difficult. But she found her way out and now helps others who are in the same situation. And she's extended compassion and empathy where I did not feel deserving of that in any way. All people are deserving of of empathy and compassion. So you didn't feel worthy of it, but you still were, even though you didn't feel that way. Join the conversation now. Welcome to Rob Conrad Conversations. Conversations with extraordinary people that motivate and inspire, learn, grow, and impact lives. Subscribe now and hit the bell icon for a new conversation every week. Here comes the sunshine and burns away clouds like they never were. Hey, welcome. This is Rob Conrad from Switzerland. When she was 14 years old, Shannon Martinez was raped at a party by two men who took advantage of her while she was intoxicated. Trying to cope with the anger and hurt caused by this trauma, she found support and a place to channel her negative emotions in a white supremacist organization and became a neo-Nazi skinhead for five years until she was taken in by a family that changed her mind and supported her in leaving the organization. Now a mother of seven kids, she fights against extremism is educating communities and institutions about violent far-right extremism, such as the UN Office of Counterterrorism, the Center for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence, the National Counterterrorism Center, and UN Women. She's passionate about empowering families and communities and is helping law enforcement officers and policymakers to understand how people get radicalized and helps those who want to disengage from hate movements of any part of the political spectrum. I'm glad she found the time in her busy schedule and family life to talk with me today. Thank you very much for taking the time, Shannon Martinez. Thank you for having me. Thanks for persevering through scheduling nightmares. Um, <laughs> life with seven kids is, is no joke. <laughs> I, I get three kids and it sometimes feels overwhelming. So how does it work logistically with seven kids? I mean, it's like 
overwhelming. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you know, a, a lot of it is leaning in really hard to imperfection. And, you know, like, <laughs> I feel like it's over time, there's more and more sort of numbing that happens. It's like with your, you know, with your first, you're just like, oh, well, everything matches and everything, you know, and by, by the seventh, you're like, are you legal to go into a store? Okay. You have shoes. I don't care <laughs> whose they are, what feet they're on. Like if, if they match, like you're just, okay, we're good. Like, <laughs> your standards plummet really, <laughs> really quickly. But I think there's also this idea of like that you get to more to the core of like what is really important. Like we have, and and then you just hold on to that with all you got. <laughs> and they're at an age now where they can support each other if they still want to. <laughs> yeah, and overall, like the overall. M- in the large scope of things, they all actually get along really well. There are like some little microaggressions inside those relationships. <laughs> and um, the older three all sort of had their own struggles. The young, the, then the, the next three um, all really had, they all get along really, really well. But they, um, it's, I have a boy, three girls, three teenage girls, mm-hmm. and then three boys. And the youngest girl and the next two boys, like they just have a really, really cool and really mm-hmm. special relationship where they just, they do lots of pretend stuff and they always have these things that they're working on together and they're like filming television shows and sewing costumes and doing, they do all this crazy, crazy, amazing creative stuff together. And so their dynamic has actually kind of been like a driver for uh, a better, like collected um, you know, sort of like family relationship with one another. It's really, it's, it's really awesome. The oldest three all kind of had their conflicts, but my oldest son, when he was about 14, he, he, he was like, Oh man, if I like, if I continue being such an asshole to <laughs> my sisters, like I'm not going to have a family when I grow up. And I was like, thank God, like 14 years of saying that over and over and over again. <laughs> like <laughs> I was like, it finally like sunk in. And so he's worked really hard on trying to like heal those relationships and cultivate them. And I think that that has trickled down to everyone else too, that okay. you know, it's, it's the unasked for and unfair burden of the oldest kids in a large family that it's like, whatever they're doing is, you know, is, is intensely modeling for the rest of the kids about what's okay and what life looks like and, you know, how to be and how to be in the world and everything. And, um, which is sometimes amazing. And sometimes I'm sure really, really a huge and heavy load to carry. Well, but there's a great amount of things to learn from that as well for them. (laughs) Yes. They probably don't want to hear it, but uh, if nothing else, I can tell you what not to do as a parent. Like I've got that down. Like I totally. (laughs) Although my youngest is three, so I'm sure I have like a whole like a whole another lifetime of mistakes to make. Uh, fantastic. So, Shannon, um, when, when I talk to you, you don't come across as someone who used to, you know, uh, paint swastikas on on walls and you know, scream Nazi paroles and uh, attack people who are who are of of different race or color. Um, can you explain a little bit uh, what happened to you and and how you um, got into that um, organization and? Um, yeah, how you get started with that? Um, when I was growing up, um, I have one older brother. Uh, mm-hmm. He's two and a half years older than me. Um, my parents 
uh, are still married. They just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary this year. Um, So from the outside, um, I, you know, everything looked great in our family. My parents were sort of like upwardly mobile middle class. They both grew up in uh, blue collar working class families. Um, And my dad ended up uh, going to school to become uh, a mechanical engineer. And so they were sort of on this slow upward trajectory into the middle and then into upper middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, we lived in this neighborhood that like was really, it's really, you know, it was idyllic um, mm-hmm. almost where it's like, if you knocked on enough doors, you could always find someone to play with. The whole neighborhood was interwoven and connected by sidewalks. Mm-hmm. You could ride your bikes anywhere. Um you know, it's like you, you, there were always people around. Um, but on the inside of our family and the family dynamic that we had going on, um, it was, you know, what I would come to understand in my adulthood um, would, was that it was really codependent. There was no active um, illegal drug use. There was not alcohol abuse. There wasn't, um, you know, physical abuse. My, you know, we were spanked and stuff, mm-hmm. but um but it wasn't beyond the cultural norm mm-hmm. at the time. So it wasn't, there wasn't like physical abuse like that, but there was a lot of really codependent um, relationship structures in our family. And so what I mean by that is that like, um, that it was very hard to understand and negotiate boundaries. So it's like something that would be fine during the afternoon would suddenly become not okay anymore at night when okay. like the adults were tired. So whenever the adults felt disempowered or out of control, they, you know, that, that they would project that outwards through like yelling and, you know, and, and sort of like modeling that kind of, you know, so the way I came wired as well, like I've always felt like the black sheep in my family. Always. Like I literally feel like I came out of my mother saying why. And and for people who valued my, my family's core values were like conformity and fitting in and just, you know, head down, power through, do the work you have to do so that you can go get a great education and succeed. Mm -hmm. Six years old, first grade, I started asking why I had to do homework. (laughs) And I was like, and I like, I was like, if I, if you're telling me that it's so I can get A's on my tests and the tests are the measure of how well I know the material. If I can get A's on your tests without doing homework, explain to me why I have to do this homework. Okay. It was like this ongoing conflict. I still, as an adult, haven't gotten a good answer to that. Like, I still don't understand why you have to do homework. Like if, you know, like I understand maybe reading assignments and stuff, but I like, I'm, st- I still don't get it. If I can pass the, the exam that you're telling me that I have to, because of your educational system and how it's set up, then tell me why I have to do this. So I understand. Um, I'm, never, and, I'm never showing this interview to my daughters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't, well, uh, yeah. But see, this way you can get an education that is meaningful to you. You should always, I mean, this is like part of, you know, my core values uh, in my family where it's like, everything's up for discussion. You know, it's like, I might, because I mean, the secret is that parents are completely making it up as they go, you know, like we don't talk about it, but it's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm literally just making stuff up. So my kids always are allowed to be like, well, why is that? What's that? What's that about? I don't think, I don't agree with that. Like, and if they can make their good argument that I'm like, okay, that's all right. Well, let's, let's rethink that because my way is clearly not reflective of your 
your reality for you. Um, so I've, I've learned from that and taken that. And, you know, for me, I'm like, you're, you know, part of that is standing the gap from my upbringing to trying to raise a generation that, um, you know, that has a different value set from, from what I grew up with and mm-hmm. helping them understand that their voice has agency and that they have the empowerment to be able to enact change in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, even fundamentally in terms of the rules, which govern them, like, mm-hmm. which is hard because <laughs> the unintended consequence is that everything is up for debate all the time. You know, everything is questionable. Um, but that's what I want them, you know, one of the things I want them to take into their adulthood as citizens mm-hmm. of the world. It's like, I want you to not just accept that the status quo because it's the way it is. It's like, please yeah. use your voice and enact that. But for my parents who was, <laughs> that was not part of their cultural value, I was a nightmare. And they were like, just do your homework. Like, what are you doing? And so, like, this would this would be an ongoing conflict, um, but it's very indicative of um, of this sort of core difference between the way I came wired and the way that my family was. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that I sort of dealt with um, the this sense of like struggling to feel like I belong, that I had this place that I you know where where I felt deeply connected, was that I played sports. I played everything other than basketball. I'm five foot two. My hands are like, you know, on screen, they're this big and they're literally almost like that big. (laughs) Basketball is a no go. But, um, you know, it gave me a sense of like being in my body and um, which I didn't, I know now as an adult, it's actually very, very important to me that that experience of being like very physically in my body and aware and, you know, and, and moving my body intentionally and, and striving, whether it's like hiking or backpacking or, you know, or whatever that it's like trying to be really physically engaged in my body is, is crucial for my own mental well-being. I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't understand that as a kid. I just knew that I, you know, that I like sports and that it gave me some sense of like being on a team and striving for, you know, some, some goal, um, you know, working together. Um, when I was 11 years old, my family would end up moving from just outside of Philadelphia to rural Southern Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, to say it was culture shock was like, would be the understatement of, of the century. I grew up, uh, you know, I, I went from basically this like urban area to the sticks. Like it was, it was so, it was so mind blowing. And for me, I also, um, I like when I was a kid, I always really, really loved teenagers. And like, I just, you know, I just had, I just revered them and I couldn't wait to be a teenager. and. In uh, at 11 years old, in uh, outside of Philadelphia where I lived, that put me in middle school. So I was like, I wasn't a teenager, but I was at least in the same school building as teenagers. And like, I thought that was amazing. And when we moved, um, I had to go back to like primary school, back to elementary school. So it was like, I wasn't, you know, like that whole experience was sort of like stripped from me. And I realized that that sounds trite and, you know, not really that important. But for me, um, in that 11 year old space, like it was a, it was just one more sort of like crucial blow that was dealt to me. Um, when, you know, in this really vulnerable, this really vulnerable, you know, part, part point in my development right there at the onset of adolescence. Um, so we moved and like, I didn't really struggle to fit in like these people, like I, I had this hardcore, like Philadelphia accent and, uh, 
the, the Midwesterners were like, are you from England? Like, where, <laughs> where are you from? And I was like, no, I'm from Philadelphia. Like I'm from Philly, yo. <laughs> what are you guys doing? And, uh, and so like, it was always sort of this struggle to fit in. And I did make friends, but it was very difficult to, to develop, you know, that, that sense of like really like deep belonging. You felt different. So in I, a way. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And just inherently. So it's like, I already felt different. And, but luckily I was still playing sports. So like, I still had that. I still had some sports that I was playing. Um, and that, that, that was still pretty much like a lifeline for me, uh, playing, playing a bunch of sports. Um, However, at the same time, like I started to understand that like mainstream culture was never really going to be a place where, um, where I was going to find a meaningful uh, expression of my identity. I was never going to posit an identity in mainstream culture. So I started in like reading and uh, immersing myself like in hippie culture and like hippies and an- the anti-war movement. And I read lots of uh, anti, you know, not lots of Vietnam War literature, which was just coming out right around then. That it was, you know, the first wave of a lot of the the fiction and a lot of the even some of the nonfiction that was coming out of the Vietnam era. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read and I read so much of that. Um, one of my very first favorite books that I remember having, um, besides, uh, on the road and, uh, <laughs> you know, one flew over the, the cuckoo's nest, um, was, uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Like I, I, I just absolutely loved the radical nature of those ideas and the idea of living out your ideals with your very life. Um, Fast forward to continuing sort of looking for identity and counterculture, and I ended up um, encountering skateboarders, which I which like rocked my world, and I super loved the idea of like their physical appearance holding power. That it was like you know with their like asymmetrical scene kid haircuts or whatever. That it was like that you could elicit a particular response with just with your physical appearance that, you know, in my mind as a teenager, I was just like, Oh, well, I can tell a lot about you by how you react to me. If I, you know, if I throw this thing out there, which is my physical appearance, if I have, you know, radical dress or hairstyles like that has its own kind of power. I would end up going uh, across the border from in, from Michigan to uh, high school in Toledo, Ohio. One of the laws, and I don't know if it's still a law now, but at the time there was a law that if you lived out of state and went to high school in Ohio, that you couldn't play sports. Um, that, okay. that was primarily uh, associated with football and that they would recruit uh, over the border mm-hmm. uh, for football players and stuff, um, which, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's America. Everything revolves around football. I live in a university town where literally, like, the traffic patterns are, dedic- are, like, are determined by football games. And stuff. Like, the people's spending patterns. As a bartender, I work as a bartender, and as a bartender, if the team loses, like, I know I'm going home with no money, that there's, like, this collective sorrow. <laughs> so, you know, it's like football just, I don't know, just – for whatever reasons is is just so caught up with so much of what we do in America. Um, But what the effect was on me is that I can no longer play sports. So this sort of like last lifeline. um, And I thought maybe though, that going to school, like 
to in a better quality school and also in a private school where it was like there would be a lot of people coming from lots of different schools that maybe I would, you know, I would be able to negotiate some of the like social structure a little bit better. Um, and it wasn't like, and I wasn't, I was, I was well liked, but at sophomore year I was elected class president. Um, it wasn't that I wasn't well liked. It's that I really struggled to have those connections that felt really deep and meaningful and to really have a sense of belonging, that there's a difference between people liking you and liking being around you than mm-hmm. where you feel like, okay, these are my people and they've got me. Where you have a sense of connection and being connected to a certain group of people. And a deep connection beyond just like, hey, this is, you know, we're, we're friends or whatever, that there's some that there's some sort of, you know, that there's some sort of part of that that um, is different from just being like, we're friends. And hey, these this is the place where I belong. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like I did mock you in and I did stuff like that. Um, and it just and that was fine. Um but it didn't have, you know, it wasn't like the same, like you weren't like, oh, the security council really kicked ass today. It wasn't the same. It's like, we just won the championships. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't the same sort of thing um, that was feeding me. In between uh, my first and second year of high school, uh, I would end up going to uh, the aforementioned party uh, and uh, I would end up being raped by two men at that party. Um, and when I woke up the next morning, uh, I looked at my underwear and I was like, okay, there's a little bit of blood. Cause it was, I had never had sex before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, well that really happened. And hyper pragmatically, I was like, okay, well, I guess when I have sex for the first time now, like it won't hurt. Mm-hmm. And then the story that I told myself and would continue to tell myself for almost the next 10 years was that I lost my virginity to two men at a party. I knew that I could not tell my parents that the way and very strong evidence from, you know, things that happened as I was growing up, that their, that their sense of, you know, feeling like disempowered and trying to project that out, um, would manifest where it's like, if you were sick or hurt, that their first reaction was always to yell at you. And there was like, well, why are you, why did you do that? Didn't, don't you know it's Christmas Eve or we've told you how many times not to do cartwheels in the playroom. And, you know, so rather than being like, oh, oh my gosh, that must be terrible, you know, and let me comfort you and see if you're okay. That their first reaction, which they would eventually do, but their first reaction was always, it, you're, it, you're hurt and it's your fault. <laughs> So I, there was this part of me that knew innately that they would be more upset than I had just been sexually, that I had been drinking and that I had lied about where I was going because I had said I was going over to a friend's house and then we went to this party. Um, then they would be upset that I had just been sexually assaulted. Um, and subsequent conversations with my parents as adults have totally reinforced that this was that I wasn't just making this up, that that is exactly what would have happened. Um, and so the traumatized part of me was like, okay, like we can't like, that's, we're not going to further traumatize ourselves by trying to go tell someone who is then going to blame us for this happening in the first place. So I shoved all that down and created this narrative um, that was a way for me to deal with it, that I lost my virginity to two men at a party. Mm-hmm. I've since wondered, like, 
why in the hell didn't anyone ask me straight up? Like, Hey, have you been sexually assaulted? Because I was a, I was a cutter. I was, you know, I self-harmed. Um, mm. and there were so many indicators that this was what was going on, uh, in my life and nobody ever asked me, but in fairness, I don't know that I would have been able to say yes, because I was so invested in the story that I had told myself that in the midst of it, I don't know that I would have been able to say yes. Um, I was watching this show on Netflix that was uh, set in like a young woman's detention center. So like uh, young women who were not yet 18. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a girl in there and she's just raging and, you know, and she was just like, I don't even know what's wrong with me. You know, I was like, man, did I like, I resonated with that so deeply because I Mm -hmm. totally, totally understood that, you know, like that, that it's one of the biggest challenges of dealing in particular with young people, particularly people that are hauling around trauma or traumatic experiences because your brain tries to protect you from them. And Mm -hmm. so there's this way in which you really don't know what the hell is going on. In my case, that would come out about within about six months. And I was just filled with rage and not Mm -hmm. like teenage angst, not like my mom's an asshole or whatever, you know, not, not that, that it was like, I mean, I was filled with rage. I didn't know where to put it. I didn't, um, I didn't have anywhere to deposit it. And by this time through skateboard culture, I was deeply immersed in the punk culture. So, you know, going to, to shows and, you know, my, you know, I had crazy hair all the time. A lot of times I would just, you know, have, I would shave my head. I would dye it all different colors and, um, you know, and do all this the angriest people in this already kind of like angry subculture um, were the skinheads and they were at every show that I was at and they would all, there would always be fights. There would always be a fight mm-hmm. and they would always have each other's backs. I think that the rage and the anger in me like really resonated with that, that, you know, like seeks out like, um, and at the same time, there's this part of me that like, I had this ever plummeting um, sense of worth or value. Um, and so, you know, like, how do you, how do you create friendships and relationships when you feel valueless? Mm-hmm. So there was this part of me that was kind of like, well, like, okay, well, like they're kind of the worst. So they've got to take me and like, who's worse than the Nazis, you know, like, so it's kind of like, they've got to take me. Mm-hmm. And so I started hanging around with them. And then eventually, you know, it's like I would come to understand that in order to like call this, you know, call, you know, ha- have this acceptance and the belonging and, you know, the sort of like, uh, you know, substitute family sort of situation, the surrogate family, um, that I would have to uh, espouse this ideology of hate, of, you know, that I hate brown people, I hate black people, I hate Jews. I hated everyone. Like I hated everything. I hated the whole world. I hated myself. So for me, taking the hatred and the self-hatred that I felt up and projecting it out onto specific groups of people was, it was not that difficult. Mm -hmm. And slowly like, you know, and part of the process of that is wearing down like your inhibitions uh, about, 
uh, about using racially charged language and stuff like that. And one of the primary drivers for, for me in that process was listening to like white supremacist music. Um, mm-hmm. Because as you sing along with lyrics, then it becomes easier. Your brain, you know, takes in that information. It becomes easier for you to go ahead and use that terminology while you're singing along. And then that becomes it's easier to use them in conversation or in passing. And then it becomes easier to sort of project that out and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and eventually, you know, makes it where you don't that, that any of the, the inhibition that you had is totally gone. Um, there's also this process that goes on, uh, because I, I, I believe now that in order to, uh, in order to dehumanize and objectify other human beings, that you actually have to work really hard at it, that your brain actually has to work really, really hard to not identify other humans as human. And the way that this works um, uh, is that as my personal worth and value and sense of worth and value continued to decrease mm-hmm. that at the same time, my, what I felt like my value was as like a body for this, for the white supremacy movement ever increased. So mm-hmm. my ability to perform, you know, like, and, and use violence was ever increasing because I felt like the more that the more willing that I was able to give like my life and my body to the movement that it was like somehow that that would you know compensate for this ever in you know ever decreasing sense of worth and value that I have and it was almost it's almost like you have to continually sort of like triple dog dare yourself to do more you know greater risk taking behaviors to invest more of yourself so that your brain can actively continue to adhere deeper and deeper to this ideology. It's like you are making the stakes higher all the time to make leaving harder, to make walking away more difficult to, you know, that to, to, to make it so that you, you know, you have, it's operates very much like a drug where it's like what, what fed that, in small amounts at the beginning, you know, saying racial epithets or whatever, it's like that, that doesn't, that, that doesn't bring the same sort of payback anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you have to continually sort of take greater and greater risks and do more and more, you know, terrible and, uh, violent and, uh, you know, and, and hate filled things that that's sort of the cycle of, and it's like when people are in that part of their, uh, allegiance and their uh, adherence to hate or violence based movements, they're almost untouchable. There's almost nothing that you can do. Like you're not going to reach them at that point. So, so how long did this process take from when you first started to associate yourself with this um, organization or this ideology until you went, no, we were a full blown skinhead. So like full on Nazi. Yeah. So how, how long, how long <laughs> did it as, as you it was probably the first pr- part of that process was probably between like six months and a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and as you sort of learn the jargon and, you know, sort of like the nuances of the subculture and, you know, and, and you know, and stuff like that. And at the same time, because I, and because I am who I am that, you know, it's like, I read a lot of, you know, I read Mein Kampf and I read the Turner Diaries and I read a lot of the, you know, the, the classics of 
white supremacy literature and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was like fact gathering and information gathering or whatever. But by that point, it was like my mind had been so twisted and it was using, you know, my, it was coming about this, like meeting my broken and twisted needs Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, that it wasn't like, oh, hey, this is, surely this is bullshit. (laughs) This is terrible. Like that, that wasn't, that was not how my brain was processing that information at that time. So it was probably about a year until I was really kind of like full on. Um, and then I would continue to sort of escalate and, you know, to, you know, and to ever increasingly risky behavior, um, and hate filled behavior over the next, you know, about four years or so. Um, Like what, for example? Uh, you know, like there were, I, I, there were, there was a point where I was like running guns and like taking, you know, unmarked guns and running them, selling them across the country, um, that there would be bigger, uh, you know, bigger risk-taking behaviors of, uh, flyering, uh, targeted neighborhoods and targeted, uh, audiences. And by that, like, I mean, like hanging flyers, um, or, putting handbills under people's windshield wipers and stuff like that. Um, there were always fights going on, whether it was like with, uh, you know, like anti-racists, which are now like, you know, I mean, are now in the, the, the embodiment of like Antifa or whatever, mm-hmm. that there was always like this, the, 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 the anti-racist skinheads or the anti-racist punks that, you know, that, that, that they were, it was just a different expression of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, that that we would find and then by the very end like i mean we would just basically look around we would just drive around and look for you know violence uh mm-hmm. whether it was uh through you know jumping people on the street or um you know eventually we would end up uh tear gassing at a gay nightclub and mm-hmm. uh because in the life that i was living like we, we just happened to have a, t- a canister of tear gas in the car like Yeah, of course you know because <laughs> why wouldn't you when you're a bunch of skinheads you, that you that's what you, but there was also there was this process and it's a shift even within the uh skinhead movement while i was in it where mm. on the one hand it got more militaristic that it took on more of a paramilitary sort of um uh expression where the clothing changed from some of the traditional like jeans and boots and braces to um bdus and paramilitary clothing and that there was a you know an increasing idea of like training training for the race war um that was surely in coming you know surely coming any any day now um so there was that happening and at the same time as i was as i was disengaging that there was also a big push in the movement for Uh, people to like normalize that it's like, Hey, like grow your hair out and Mm. try to assimilate into the societies around you so that you can actually enact change within the structures of society that already exist instead of Mm. just being like street hooligans or whatever, that it's like infiltrate in military and police and, you know, and stuff like that, that you could take your ideology with you wherever you go. If you're willing to, Mm. You know, if you're willing to to uh, you know dress in you know suits and ties as opposed to dressing in, in boots and braces. So by the end, you know, by the end, just before I I disengaged, that I ended up, you know, I mean, it was just it was imminent that I was going to to end up dead or in jail in the very short term. Sorry, sorry, sorry just the kid just a bit. 
Nearly. <laughs> so that's talk about kids. If anyone can relate, it is me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. That's right. So um, you mentioned earlier in the discussion that uh, what you were seeking is this the sense of belonging and and you know being part of of a group or, or really co connecting with a group. So did you find that um, with the yes. experience? Yes, I I did. Like, you know, like I absolutely felt a sense of like belonging and like, and you know, that I had this identity and, um, that I felt like I lacked agency in my life, you know, that I felt, you know, and so this was kind of like a way where it was like, okay, like, you know, I, I felt completely disempowered, like on a really fundamental level. Um, and so, um, you know, like I, that need was met. Like I felt like I had, you know, I was steering the course of, of the world and of, you know, and sort of of my own life, people, a lot of times are like, well, as a, like, as a woman, like, what were you doing? Like, this is a very anti woman, uh, you know, ideology, like what, mm -hmm. what were you doing? Um, and the best way that I can, that I can, uh, phrase it so that it makes any sense was that for me coming with this like very broken, uh, sexuality from being sexually assaulted that I was coming into a subculture where it was almost all dudes. It was almost all guys. Mm -hmm. And so as a, as a woman, there were always like girlfriends around and stuff, but very, very few were like, you know, Chelsea'd out and had, you know, and very few were, were, were uh, self-identified as like skinheads. Mm -hmm. Um, I was able to go out with anyone I wanted. Like in mainstream culture, I was like, I didn't understand like relationships or like how to, you know, I didn't understand like how to negotiate a lot of that. But like inside the movement, it was like, I could pretty much go out with whoever I want mm -hmm. um, because I was one of only a handful of girls. Um, and at the same time, this like, you know, it's such a, an intensely hyper toxic masculine culture inside the extreme far right that, um, again, these like broken and twisted needs that I had that it was like that violence and willingness to use violence felt like strength and it felt like safety. Mm -hmm. That it felt like to me that I was like, okay, well, these are people that, you know, like can keep me safe. Even though so many of my relationships, my interpersonal relationships while I was in the movement were hyper violent. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a count, it's a movement based on objectifying and dehumanizing people perceived as weaker. So mm -hmm. women don't fare well at all inside the movement. There's this lip service to like women are sacred vessels bringing forth the new, you know, new white nation and all this stuff. And, you know, el this, this uh, targeted uh, draw to uh, women, you know, like looking for more traditional roles that as we, you know, as we are in this, this modern age of trying mm -hmm. to, negotiate and find the balance between women working and, you know, ha having families and, you know, that it's a, that we're still not, we still don't really have that figured out very well, particularly in America where there's no, you know, there's not paid leave and there's not really support for um, mm -hmm. new families and stuff that it's like, we're still really, really, really negotiating some of that. So there's this, they utilize that the far extreme far right utilizes that to target and say, Hey, like, you know, women are meant to 
have children and be home and like they shouldn't be in these spaces that men are in and that you were created to be like our help meets and you know that they co-opt a lot of the stuff that's used by um like fundamental christians and stuff to as this you know as this way to like draw women who are obviously looking for you know it's like you're looking for like safety and protection in an environment that makes sense um and so my like interpersonal relationships were just a violent disaster. Like I was in, you know, I was in very physically and emotionally abusive relationships for most of my time inside the movement. But, you know, the way that it works, that it's like that fed exactly my self-image of myself at that time. Like I felt worthless and valueless. And so being in those kinds of relationships completely were, you know, feeding what I felt, uh, you know, what, what I felt about myself anyway. Um, you know, and so like that, that was, um, you know, that, that, that a lot of times people are like, well, I don't even understand like how a woman would, would end up being in that. And so hopefully that, that kind of, you know, sheds and I'm sure that there are other experiences as well besides mine but um, from talking to other women who have been radicalized into violence that that seems to be a very uh, a very common uh, uh, piece and parcel of that the other thing that's going on um, that I, that we're only starting now to really understand even the beginnings of the way that human brains and bodies deal with trauma and how, how we process trauma. Um, and I'm very, very excited for the next, you know, couple decades as more and more of this research is done and comes out. Um, because I think we will have so many more skills and tools to help, um, you know, help people to process trauma more effectively and efficiently. Um, that when the brain is traumatized, uh, it seems to attach more readily to like unidimensional thought, very binary styles of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and my thoughts about this are that by, ha by creating a very black and white world that your brain doesn't have to, your brain, which is essentially sort of injured, doesn't have to negotiate the complexity that life actually entails mm -hmm. that if you have this unidimensional life mm -hmm. that you wake up and this thing is the most important. And when you take your first breath of the day, this thing is most important. And no matter what you do, this one thing is your top priority and what you base all of your other things on that your brain doesn't have to do the work of this thing is more important right now. And now things have shifted. Oh, and now this hour, these things are the most important mm -hmm. that your brain is not equipped right now to handle that. So it readily attaches itself to unidimensional uh, living. And as, you know, as people leave uh, lifestyles that are either like hate or violence based or uh, some other sort of unidimensional living, um, you know, cults would be a very, mm -hmm. you know, something that is not violence or hate based. That would be a very similar sort of thing that, we have to be ever vigilant within our lives as we continue on for the rest of our lives about attaching to any sort of unidimensional living. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of ways. There's lots of things that are healthy and seen as healthy and perceived as healthy and are healthy for people for whom they're not dealing with 
you know, ongoing sort of like traumas, things like exercise or, you know, like sports fanaticism or whatever, that it's like there, that there can be things that are not inherent. Religion is not an inherently negative thing, but the way that people like who have brains like mine, that it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do it all the way and to death. And it's going to be the only thing that I do. In one, every- one, one idea with an idea basically. And just yes. Yeah. Yes. And now obviously there's a hierarchy of like, you know, clearly being a, you know, a super duper intense, like religious fanatic um, that's not based in violence is better than being a neo-Nazi white supremacist skinhead. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like there's this thing that's, inherently bad and then this thing which is like okay maybe the way that i'm utilizing it in my personal life is bad but it's not inflicting harm on other people you know so the the problem that stays the same essentially yes i know i don't want like there's no i'm not equating the two things but the way that it that it functions in people's lives who are dealing with trauma that it is that it's a net negative Mm -hmm. um because I was, you know, I'm not allowing myself to live and lean into to, to complexity. And mm-hmm. so I'm hiding from dealing with the crap that I have to continue to deal with the healing and, you know, and the, you know, lear- learning and negotiating relational skills and my, you know, being uncomfortable in my environments or, you know, whatever it is that, that I have to, to, to learn to do that all of those things are always, uh, an allure to not have to deal with the stuff that I don't want to deal with or that I feel ill-equipped to deal with. And so it's like watching for like drug addiction and alcohol abuse and all like all of those things, it's like keeping ever vigilant, um, which I will have to do for the, for the entirety of my life. Like I will have to continue to be vigilant that I am letting my life be messy and <laughs> juggling multiple priorities. So, so has seven kids. Yeah. <laughs> Got that done. But you know, it's like letting, 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 my life be sort of messy that that is part of my healing um you know and and this recognition of trauma and how it you know and what we're learning about it is that trauma is passed on genetically through our like epigenomes and stuff and so it's like trying to figure out as you know in my own life and then developing you know programmatically dealing with people who are uh exiting and leaving uh, violence and hate-based movements. It's like, okay, like what, how do we, how do we negate or minimize the transmission of that trauma mm-hmm. to the next generation? You know, how do we make ongoing meaningful amends? How do we relate to the people? What, wh- how did we get, get there? And this is why I think it's a worthy conversation. Um, you know, that, that for, for me as a, a former neo-Nazi white supremacist, that I feel like there is value in figuring out how I got there, Mm -hmm. whether or not that correlates, which it seems to, and there is research now to support um, that a lot, there's so much overlap between uh, entrances into all kinds of violence-based extremism, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't even matter what the ideology is. um, Trauma trauma seems to be an important factor in that. Many yes. times from the discussions I had as well. It's true. I so, would say that it's a hundred percent of the time or very, very close to a hundred percent of the time. It's just what we call trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, because not everyone is going to have like, you know, physical abuse or, you know, or whatever, that there are different kinds of ways that the brain is traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like we're only just really kind of 
kind of, you know, scratching the surface of our understanding about trauma and how the brain processes trauma. None of which is to excuse myself from the responsibility of the actions uh, that I took or the beliefs that I espouse. Like I don't, I don't want anyone to walk away and think that I'm just like, Oh, well I was injured. So whatever and that I, I, you know, that I, still had choices and free choices about my actions and what I did um, to myself and to other people. And, you know, and, and I know, I understand recognize, the underlying cause of all of that's in, in hindsight. Yes. And that I recognize that I have, you know, that I take responsibility for those and that I have, you know, a whole lifetime of amends to make to try to do the most good that I can and try to dismantle all of the pillars of white supremacy that I can um, while, I'm, so, while I'm here. So, uh, um, you spent around five years in the movement and um, how did you get out? What was the process of, of leaving the movement? How did, what caused it and how did you experience the process? Um, one of the things that happened um, is that, you know, I, I ended up being in my twenties and I think that this is not, you know, here's me back to like neuroscience, um, but I think that this is not, insignificant. Um, mm. When you are around in between 20, 21, 23, you gain all of your frontal lobe. So you actually have the part of your brain now that understands better and can process how your actions affect other people and the potential long-term consequences mm. of decisions. So I don't think that that's insignificant. Um, because again, like I, I programmatically later on, I feel like if we can work towards, you know, once people are in, or it's like, if we can, if we can disrupt them enough to where they can minimize the harm that they cause by the time they're in their early twenties and they are able to better process how their actions influence their environments and the other people that they that I think there's a pretty I think there will end up being through research that you will see that there's a pretty strong drop off rate. Mm -hmm. So the maturity of your brain and how you process, yes. how you process your actions yes. has a big influence on your actions. Yes. And so if you can stay out of jail and you can keep from doing catastrophic harm to other people, then you, you know, potentially at least have the chance mm -hmm. to get to a place where you can then, you know, try to make amends and try, you know, try to, to, to process through what just happened in your life. But for me personally, so I'm like, you know, going into my twenties, um, my parents were finally, cause I would, I would leave home and I would end up coming back. And, uh, you know, for a lot of, until I was an adult, I would get picked up by the police as a runaway and sent back home. Um, but my parents were finally like, dude, you can't come home anymore. Like this is too, this is too, too too hard for us, which was fine with me because we didn't get along at all. Um, but I didn't really have anywhere to go. And I was going out with a guy at the time who was in the army. I lived in a town at we, my parents. had moved to uh, a, the Southern U S and I was living in a town where there was an army base. And um, I was going out with a guy who was in the army, who was a, a neo-Nazi white supremacist skinhead. Um, and uh, his mom said, that I could come live with her. I had met her uh, previously when he had gone down there on leave. Um, and she was like, oh, well, you can come live here. And she was a single mom. She had three younger sons who uh, she had 11-year-old uh, twins at the time and a nine-year-old son. 
Um, and she had been uh, recently divorced. Uh, and she let me come live with her. Uh, while the guy I was going out with, like, finished up his army training. Uh, and then he was going to, like, be in the reserves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was not part of her ideology at all. I'm pretty sure that she knew, like, what our ideology was. But, you know, even if she didn't know the specifics of our ideology, I mean, I was at the height of, like, just, I looked gruff. And I was living this, like, intense, like, street thug life. I had shaved head and boots and just so many you know, so many layers of anger. And, um, and so the, the, the miracle of her just being, of seeing through that to a person that was worth bringing into her home, um, is an astounding thing. Uh, and then she set some ground rules and was like, okay, like you got to help me around the house. You have some chores to do. Maybe you can help me with some of the bigger projects that I really need help with. Um, try to look for a job. Um, but she let me like do all the stuff that they did as a family with her mm-hmm. younger sons that we would go fishing and camping and we would, you know, play Frisbee outside and mm-hmm. I could tag along to go take the boys to Cub Scouts. I read them the Chronicles of Narnia every night before bed. Um, and it was like, oh yeah, this is kind of like what people do. Like I'd forgotten, like I, I was living this, like this immense, like just thuggy life where it was just like man like it was just I I didn't even remember what people did other than like trying to go look for fights and you know funnel beer or whatever and fight with each other if we couldn't find anyone else to fight with Um, and I think some of it too was that her taking me in broke the like in my case was like a physical echo chamber that I lived in that I always since the time I was like 15 and I left home for the first time I lived primarily and almost solely with other neo-Nazi white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by coming into her household, that's broken so that there isn't, there's like a disruption in this like amplification effect that's happening. Um, and also um, by, by living in that house, it created enough stability in my life too, that it was enough where, you know, I wasn't like thinking about, okay, like, where's my next meal coming from? What am, you know, what's going to happen? Am I going to jail tonight or whatever? There was enough stability in my, in my life that it was like, she created space around me so I could begin to shift and look and like really sort of self-examine my life and what the heck I was doing. Um, and then she also like, you know, dream dreams for me that I had like forgotten how to dream for myself. Because when you're in this, when you're in this violent um, subculture, that there's no tomorrow, there's no future, there's literally only right now. There is only present, you know, and so it's like the lip service that's given by the extreme far right to like, we're building a better tomorrow. I'm like, there, you know, you're not because you can't look at tomorrow. You're literally living right now. And that's all that there is. I finally had this, you know, this person who was like, don't you like want to go to college? And like, you're reading all these books because I've books have been <laughs> books have been just a pillar of my life since, you know, since I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old. Um, and yes, you know, like reading, I was reading uh, Fitzgerald at the time. And like, I love, like I read a lot of Keats and, you know, it's th- this idea of like, how do I just, how can my heart be broken at the English language at its most beautiful? And hold this hate-filled 
ideology? Mm. How do these things, how, how do these both exist inside me at the same time? Mm. How do I just love the music of like Billy Bragg or whatever and hold, you know, which is like the antithesis of this ideology that I have. Like, how can I hold these two things as co-equal in my mind? Um, and so that, that process there, like that was, you know, that was part of the self-examination. And then she also, um, you know, in the process of having me in her house, that she also was just like, okay, well, like, if you're going to go to school, there's things you're going to need to do. And she helped me get connect with those resources to go find addresses, to help me get postage, to write letters and help me mail those letters, help me take the entrance exams that I would need. And not just like be like, you should do this, but I'm going to make sure you have number two pencils. I'm going to put you in the car and we're going to go and we're going to do this and we're going to make it a whole day when you get out and we'll, you know, like have, you know, taco fiesta night or, you know, whatever. Um, so she basically offered you an alternative reality to reality yes to yes. your structure yes. to to and she saw value in me and she extended compassion and empathy where i did not feel deserving of that in any way mm -hmm. like i used to say that i didn't deserve it and then somebody took me to task for that and they were just like no all people are deserving of of empathy and mm -hmm. compassion so mm -hmm. you didn't feel worthy of it but you still were even though you didn't feel that way so now i've changed like <laughs> how i talk about that but i didn't i felt worthless i felt like you know that that any investment in me was worthless like i was like this is not going to be a good return on your investment if you're investing in me but she did it anyway um, and then within um, about, I think I lived with her for about nine months, I think just shy of a year. Um, and I ended up moving back home and going to like a local community college for a year to demonstrate like academic proficiency so that I could go to uh, this great books college that I, I, my brother was two and a half years older than me. And so when he was looking at colleges, I stumbled across this place called St. John's College. And it's, um, a, it's a hyper traditional liberal arts college. Um, there's no majors, there's no minors, there's, you know, there's not really any tests. Everything is uh, graded on you, like your participation and your, your papers that you write that you have to verbally defend. Um, so it was like an education that made sense to me as somebody who was always like, what the hell? Like, why do I have to just learn the stuff that other people already know and spit it back at you that I was like, here's this college and this experience wrestling with, you know, the great ideas of the Western world and, you know, and learning how to learn. So it was like an education that really, that I was really drawn to that really made a lot of sense to me. Um, and so I was able, I actually was, um, I actually ended up going there. Um, I did not finish cause I ended up, uh, getting pregnant and, uh, and I left. Um, but I was able to actually like, you know, make it there and have that experience for, uh, for a couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. the process after that. So after I moved back home up until, I mean now even, but particularly the first five or so years after that, um, that it's not just like an idyllic, like pretty story. Like I disengaged and I wasn't a Nazi anymore that it was, I was a, I was a hot mess. Like I still had all this undealt with trauma. Like I still didn't have, i still didn't understand any of that. And the story that I was still telling myself had nothing to do with being sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't, I still didn't have, you know, my interpersonal relationships were still just a mess and a disaster. I was very promiscuous. Um, 
you know, which fed, you know, which fed my sense of like valuelessness and stuff like that. I didn't understand that that's a very, very common reaction to being sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. Like I just, you know, I just, for me, it was just kind of like, well, it was like a love, you know, sex was like a love substitute or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and just, it would be years and years and years until like the, the height of my sort of like personal violence of, you know, of responding with, you know, the same sort of reactions that my parents would have. Whereas if I felt disempowered that I would, you know, rage outwardly, um, that it would take a long, long time. And I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure out better ways. I'm still trying to uh, do better and better at trying to respond, you know, nonviolently, whether to myself or, you know, towards others in my communication skills and you know when I'm having trouble when I'm feeling disempowered you know I'm, I continue on that journey but in particular those next like five to ten years like I mean it was still it was not pretty like it was it was not pretty and then and I know that you know it's like I, I hurt you know a lot of the people with whom I was in relationships along the way during that time um, you know, and not, again, not to like excuse my behavior or whatever, more a matter of like understanding. Like I, I understand that, you know, it's like, I, I just didn't have the capacity to have a healthy relationship. I didn't even know what that looked like or what that meant. And I just, I mean, I was still, you know, a complete mess. Um, but I wasn't filled, you know, I wasn't looking to, um, find and deal with that through projecting, you know, hate and violence-based ideology outward anymore. That a lot of, a lot of what was going on for me was very, you know, that it was very inward focused. Um, but there was at least this, you know, this break from that ideology, um, and, uh, and a commitment to future, you know, that it was like, I had left and it was like, okay, like, even if I don't know how to get there or what that means, it was like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, that I will, that I will, keep committing to trying to, to keep learning and learn new things and learn new skills. And, you know, I think so much of, um, the difficulty of growing, of healing is that you don't even know the healing that you need to do when you first, you know, that, and then it's like you heal one layer of something and then that healing allows you to reveal this next thing that needs to be healed, that you don't even know the kind of help that you need to ask for, that you don't even know what it is that you need. Um, so um, at what point did you start to heal along your journey? When did, well, was I mean, point where you were, I think that was always still the healing. Heal or? What, the, one of the big breakthroughs in my healing, because even though that was messy, and even though it was just a pile of shit, <laughs> it was still healing. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, like I, it's, it's one of the things that I really push up against with a lot of the like self-help movement, um, you know, be happy movement or whatever mm -hmm. that it's like, man, a lot of healing looks li really messy. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't, it doesn't look the way that, you know, like if, it doesn't look the way that you think it looks. Um, not all the time. Um, that's, of course, one potential manifestation possibly. Mm. But it's like, man, healing is not like that. It's usually it's really crazy. messy. And it's, yeah, that it's like you're making lots of mistakes and you don't even know how to say you're sorry or recognize it in the moment. Um, I think now, 25 years hence, that 
if nothing else, that I have gotten shorter in the amount of time that I know that I need to ask it for forgiveness for, for something that I've done. You know, it's like I've taken it down to a few minutes rather than days or years or whatever. Um, but a real pivotal point um, was when my oldest son was born. I actually had two babies um, that I gave up for adoption. So I've actually like had nine babies. Um, but I was still such a mess that I like, I was just like, dude, I'm just going to just, if if I am your mom, like, I'm just going to ruin you. Like, I'm just going to just ruin your life by being, by insisting that I be your mom. And so I ended up having two babies that I gave up for adoption. And then my oldest son who I would keep, um, was born, uh, when I was 23 years old and, uh, his, you know, that, for me, part of that uh, uh, healing was that uh, during his birth, there was like a little bit of like, uh, you know, like birth trauma. I, I had him in the hospital with midwives um, and I didn't have an IV um, and my placenta w- wasn't being delivered right away after he was born. And the midwives were constrained by um, working in a hospital setting with what they could do and how long they could wait for that placenta to be delivered. Um, I've since learned, cause I like I've trained as a doula and stuff that a lot of times when there's like ambivalence about embracing motherhood, that there is, there can be a delay in the delivery of the placenta. And it's like, God knows that I had that. Cause I was like, well, what am I going to do? Um, but um, the doctor came in, it was the middle of the night, the doctor came in angry that, you know, that I didn't have an IV. And then he's like, okay, well, we have to manually remove this placenta. And I was like, I didn't know what the hell that meant. You know, it's like, I don't know. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, and so he like sticks his hand in the holy of holies where a baby just came forth. And it's just like, and I was like, whoa. And I was like, hold on. Can you just hold on a second? Like, now that I know what's going to happen, like, can you just give me a second and I'll be ready. And he was just like, no, like angrily, you know, and he was just like, no, like it's got to come out right now. And I, like, not in that moment, but within about six or eight months after my son was born, like I was thinking, because this is something that I feel like people don't really talk about, about healing either that I'm, I grew this baby that I've like, I was like, wow, like I, I just, the love that I felt for him was so revolutionary. Like I was like, I've, I didn't even know love like this existed. And I was so afraid that something would happen to him. Cause I was like, clearly I don't deserve this. Like clearly, mm-hmm. clearly this is not something that I get to do. So it was the first time you were really ready for a baby. I was still wasn't ready, but, <laughs> but I committed to like trying to like to breastfeed him and, um, and I, you know, I would go on to breastfeed him for almost three years. Um, but in this like six to eight months after he was born, that it was like, my body grew this being that I see as like love incarnate and my body is continuing to be the thing that nurtures and nourishes him. Mm. And so like, here I am thinking my body's worthless. It's a piece of trash. I have no value. And it is hyper challenged in that viewpoint by, well, my body did this. My body grew this being and is continuing to like help him to thrive. And the conflict between those two ideas was just intense and immense and it wasn't just like oh okay now i accept this new reality it's like when you are confronted with 
the healing ideals that, you know, that, that will help you to heal, that it's often so messy and so terrible because what you have brought to the table is being challenged and rocked to the very core. Mm -hmm. But I wanted so much to be okay for him that it was like, I didn't know. I never even changed a diaper when I had him. Like I never, like, I mean, and I didn't know how I wanted to parent. I only knew that I didn't want to parent him the way that I had been parented. And so like, I made some choices, um, uh, from the get go that I had made this commitment to. Um, so at the age of 23 that I was like, I choose to be completely, open and honest. So like if I'm running late for a meeting and it's like, dude, I don't know. I just don't feel like getting out of bed. I'm going to be like, I'm, you know, I really, I really just chose to sleep in this morning. I'm running late. I'll be there as soon as I can get there. Come what may or whatever, rather than like, I have a flat tire or, you know, whatever, like, all like, and that's, I've committed from the time that I was pregnant with him to like radical honesty. Um, and, um, you know, which can sometimes be sort of caustic or whatever too. I try not to use like truth, my truth as I see it as a weapon. You know, I try to just be like, Hey, this is my truth. This is where I'm at. Um, but that has been, <laughs> that is part of that is maturity. <laughs> part of that is now being, you know, a middle-aged woman, um, being able to do that a little bit better and understand that, you know, how to communicate my, my truth. Um, and then, you know, I'm part of it. And the other choice that I made when he was born is that I was just gonna, I was gonna do all that I could do to not transmit all of my trauma and bullshit and hate and anger and everything that had been done, had been done unto me to him. Insofar that I had any power to be the place where generationally that dysfunction died. Like that was, I like I chose to take that on so that I would not pass that on. Okay. I mean, it was messy and he, we essentially grew up together, but mm -hmm. now like a couple of years ago, I was closing the bar that I was working at. It's a, primarily a music venue. Um, and he was there. He, he had come uh, to watch the music that was there and he was like helping me like line trash cans or something as I was closing up. And, it had been a particularly crazy week as it, as it can be with a household with so many kids. And I was like, Oh man, I hope that like, I was like, I hope that if you guys grow up and choose not to have children, which is a valid choice. I was like, I hope it's for like a positive reason. That is like, you're so committed to like your art that you know that that's not really the place for kids or you're doing something else where it's, you know, that it's, it's this positive reason rather than like, it was so terrible having kids around and we watched the, you know, babies destroy our mom that we, there's no way that we want to have children. He was like, mom, don't you get it? I was like, get what? He's like, don't you get it? He's like, when your grandkids and your great grandkids are wildly happy and building such amazing lives for themselves and all the people around them, it's going to be because of you, because mm -hmm. you chose to break the chain and you That's chose to be who you were in the world. That's a truly wonderful. And I was like, oh, you know, yeah. so yeah. like, but for him to see that, you know, and he's at the oldest, it's like, man, he had to go through all of that with me. Your journey, um, and well, yeah. for him to choose to see that in me and see, you know, see the effort and the work put in, rather than just the very imperfect efforts, um, 
you know, like it's still, I'm still crying. <laughs> I'm still crying, I'm crying right now, thinking about it. That it's like, you know, may we all have that moment where someone, someone sees everything, you know, sees what we've been trying, the essence of everything we've tried respect to respect you and just grateful for what you did for your family. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I want to go back to to um, the trauma you've experienced because I think there's a lot to learn also for maybe young women who who have experienced um, violence or rape or something like that. And so we talked before, and you agree that it's okay for you to ask these questions and and that you're open about that. Um, so you said that the, your initial reaction that almost came immediately was to um, find an excuse and find an alter alternative reality by saying um, uh, no. I lost my virginity instead of being raped to, to men. Um, so what, what, when was the first time you really opened up to anyone about what happened? Oh, <laughs> that's part of the whole, like the, the, the story of, you know, having my oldest son that, um, after that, after the doctor came in and, um, you know, and, and, I was just like, wow, it was about nine months later. And I'm so like, okay, like my body maybe isn't totally trash and I'm dealing, I'm juggling and struggling with these two ideals um, that I was like, you know, there's a word when somebody comes in and angrily puts their body inside your body. I'm thinking about the doctor and this and his birth and stuff. And I was like, and especially when you say no and they do it anyway. I was like, oh, there's a, that's, there's a word. It's rape. That's, it's rape. That's rape. You know, when somebody angrily puts their body inside of your body against your consent. Mm -hmm. I was raped as, I didn't lose my virginity to two men at a party. I was raped by two men at a party. Mm -hmm. um, that, and it was like, it was in so many ways. And this is, I was 23 years old. This happened when I was 14. I was almost 24 when, when I was like coming to this understanding it was pretty close to 10 years afterwards. So like I was flooded with relief because I was kind of like, everything makes so much more sense now. Like it makes so much more sense. How, like, how, how, like, you know, looking back and like, how the hell did I become a Nazi? Like how, like, how did that even happen? And it was like this wave of relief. Like it was like, okay, like everything, the trajectory makes so much more sense now. And that would be the very beginning of having to learn how to process through that trauma um, mm -hmm. and intentionally. And it would be another, you know, five or six years before I would understand like, oh, I have like massive PTSD. Like mm -hmm. that, that, you know, that again, that idea of like, once you heal from one part of something, it's like, then you're in a place where you, the rest, you know, the next step can be revealed to you. It's like almost like a video game or whatever. It's like, you've beaten the first boss and now they're, you know, it's almost like you've beaten the first boss and now you go on all these quests and then you have the second boss who's harder to kill. And, you know, like, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of like my life. Basically. <laughs> you know, that it's like, instead of it getting easier, you're like, oh, now it's even harder. There's more stuff. It's more challenging. The, the new But stuff up until that, that point where you had this realization, you never talk to anyone about what you've experienced that night? No, no, I never did. Um, and some of that, you know, some of that was uh, my relationship with my parents. Some mm -hmm. of that was that I no longer played sports. So I didn't really have any meaningful relationships with other adults who I trusted. Mm -hmm. Some of it was that it was before the internet. So I couldn't even like Google, like, 
I was raped or whatever. Like I couldn't, you know, I didn't have any anonymous place. There was not a good dissemination of information about hotlines or what you should do. Like we didn't talk about it as a culture at all, which is part of why I've chosen to be, you know, in, in, in conjunction with my, you know, sort of like commitment to radical honesty that I want to commit to talking about all of the worst things that I've done and the worst things that have been done to me to try to disarm shame that I want it to be where we can all talk about the crap that normally we don't talk about because we feel shame instead of letting shame rule us with its dysfunction where we feel un, you know unworthy of love and connection it's like well if we can just all know that everybody has things that they so deeply regret um, so, uh, you know, obviously, you know, most people haven't been Nazis, so there's not that, you know, there's not that level of like things where you're just like, wow, this is really bad, but everyone has that stuff. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their stuff that they don't really want to tell anybody at all. Mm-hmm. And my premise is that if we can actually tell people that and talk about that, then it won't keep creating these dysfunctional um, societies that we live in. It's like, we can just talk about it and we don't need to have all this emotional charge around it that Mm -hmm. we can just, you know, that we can heal. We can speed up the process of healing a lot more quickly, which I think is, you see some of that, you know, with like the me too movement and stuff like that. And, you know, I hope that that will, I hope that that dialogue will continue, but I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have any resources. I went to a, a, all girls Catholic high school. So like most of the teachers were nuns, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm really like, who, like I'm going to go tell them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I didn't, I didn't have anyone that I felt like I could tell. Well, what about your friends that were with you at the party? Did they realize that you've been assaulted or did no. you disappear for a while and then came back? Oh, how? Um, I did, but it was, you know, it was a party and it was like people, you know, people, uh, had been drinking and everybody was, you know, sort of on their own, you know, doing their own stuff or whatever. And, um, you know, that it was like, uh, you know, uh, there wasn't, it wasn't cause for alarm that I wasn't there. You know, it's like people, there were people who were like passed out and stuff. It wasn't, you know, nobody so, was, so, nobody's so, paying so it actually happened where during I was. The, not after the party or it actually happened during that party. And then you... it was kind of afterwards. It was like, I mean, it was like I had been, um, there was actually a, another young woman and I who were hanging out with these two guys in the front yard. Um, and these, th- they were white guys. Sometimes people ask that they're like, well, were they black guy? I was like, no, they were white guys. Um, that, that, you know, the, the trajectory of uh, expressing, you know, my hate and hate filled ideology was not, it wasn't a direct correlation that way. It wasn't like I had been harmed by, um, by black people, which in fact, like when I was a really little kid living still in Philadelphia, I was actually like in a breakdance group with, um, a bunch of my, my good friends from school who were, um, all black. Um, and they like listened to like a lot of the early, like, uh, breakdance music and hip hop and stuff. So like that, so it was not some sort of like direct leap of like, I had been harmed by a person of color and now it's projecting that hours. These dudes were white. Um, and, uh, and we, she and I were like hanging out, um, outside with these dudes. And I remember, you know, like I remember bits and pieces, like I have hyper specific memories. Like I remember what I was wearing. Um, um, you know, I remember particular smells and stuff like that. Um, 
that's, you know, again, just the curious way that your brain deals with trauma. You know, it's like, there's parts of it that I have no memory of. And then there's parts that I have hyper specific memory of. Um, but I do remember, uh, you know, we were sitting, you know, talking, I remember saying that talking about how I wanted to be an English professor when I grew up and, um, that I didn't want to have sex until I was married. Um, and, uh, you know, like I remember, you know, I remember saying no. Um, and then one of the next things I remember is that, I woke up in the back seat of his car with him on top of me. Um, mm. I remember the taste of his hair in my mouth. Um, mm. And I remember, um, you know, like I, waking up to myself sort of like moaning and him saying, see, I told you it would feel good. Mm. Um, and, um, uh, and I wrote, I wrote a short piece about this too. And, and uh, you know, in, in that, in that piece of writing that, uh, talk about like turning my my face into the crack of the the car seat um, when he said that because it did feel good like and the shame of that you know like that it's like I can't help what my body feels mm-hmm. you know that that doesn't that doesn't remove the trauma or whatever mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, and then uh, I passed back out and then I remember waking up with his friend who had been out there with the other young woman that I was with. Um, but she had, you know, she was gone by that point. And then his friend was, uh, on top of me. Uh, and then one of the next things I remember is, uh, one of them walking me to the back door of the house, um, which was like a wooden screen door. And like, I remember the sound of it as it closed behind me. And so I like stumbled into the kitchen and then there were a bunch of people there and they were like making chicken nuggets or whatever. They're like, Oh, Shannon. Hey, like, here's like, here, have some chicken nuggets or whatever. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, it was like, and you know, I remember sitting there, you know, in exact, you know, what I was wearing, um, having this, you know, bright white paper plate with this glob of ketchup on it and these chicken nuggets. And I remember sitting, I remember the chair that I was sitting in eating these chicken nuggets. Um, you know, so it was this very sort of like surreal hyper memory and then ins of memory. Yeah. Did, did you know the guys beforehand or was it someone that you I didn't and they were they were much older. They were definitely like dudes that were like in their twenties and um were not people that we like regularly hung out with. Like I'd never seen them before. They just you know they had just showed up at this party. It was the where the the party was like way out in the middle of nowhere in like super rural Michigan. So it was like, you know, it's kinda like if there's a party, I, anyone you know, it's like there was nothing for anyone to do. <laughs> so it's like if there was a party, it was like everybody was going to show up for that party. So I had never seen them. I didn't know who they were. There was, you know, there's no, there was no way for me to even like report them or, you know, or So whatever. you never reported the incident and you never no. saw no. them again? Okay. No. I, I mean, I don't think I ever saw them again. Uh, so, okay. So there was no, even, even <laughs> now you, there would, wouldn't be a way to kind of make a connection who that yeah. uh, could have been. Okay. And, you know, I mean, and, and the way that, I mean, reporting works, like, I don't even know, like I, the, the people who go on to report their rapes, like I admire them so very much because it's, you have to relive and relive and relive the trauma over and over and over again. Um, there's just something that I read just today on Facebook. That was an article about a young woman who killed herself after like having to hold up her underwear at her own, like at the, the trial of her rapist, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like the trauma that you have to relive in order to report is so immense. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that so what, what, we what have got to do to better you? in terms of, of how mm-hmm. we take in rape mm-hmm. report cases. And, um, you know, it's the only, it's the only crime that's reported where people don't, um, believe the victim that, you know, if you report like, Hey, my stuff has been stolen or whatever. Some guy came by and hit me in the face. The cops aren't like, well, prove it or whatever, you know, and, I, and it's not, it's not the individual police. It's the way that the system is rigged, okay. you know, that it's like that the burden of proof is really on the victim of rape. Mm. Like that. And then and you it's, were intoxicated it's, as well. So that <clears throat> plays into the equation as yes. well. So yeah, you were drunk. So yes. who knows, who knows yes. what really happened. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what, what do you say to a, to a victim, whether it's a boy or a girl um, or a man or a woman who, who experienced this? Should they report immediately or what is it now that you've went through this and that you probably talked to other victims as well? What, 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 what's the best um, I, to that? I would absolutely positively find someone, an adult that you trust in your life and let them know. And if not, then you can let me know. <laughs> you can, you can contact me through whatever, you know, whatever means are connected with this video and you can absolutely, you know, uh, you know, connect with me and I will help get you resources that you need. If you don't have an adult that you can trust in your life, Google, I was just raped. I need help. And there will be crisis hotlines and different things that come up that can help connect you with resources and they can be as anonymous as you need them to be. Mm -hmm. Um, If you do not have, if you are, if you feel still physically in danger or you are, you know, physically uh, brutalized, go immediately um, and go to an ER, make them run a a rape kit on you. Mm -hmm. Um, Ask for copies of all of the records um, before you leave. Have them on your person so that you have copies of them. So that should you choose to go report that you have control of your information. Mm. Um, Even if you decide not to report for so many reasons that people decide not to report, you will at least have taken this step. However, Try to have a supportive adult with you. Ask in the ER. There are people, there are advocates, sexual assault advocates who are um, affiliated more and more with hospitals so that they can be with you because getting a rape kit tested can be traumatic in and of itself. They've got to do lots of swabbing and, um, you know, it can be very clinical. Um, And so try to bring someone with you that you trust. Um, But do not keep silent about it. It will destroy you. Even Mm. if you are afraid, and there are so many reasons to be afraid because it's your dad, it's your uncle, it's someone in power, it's your boss, it's, you know, somebody who the whole rest of your community looks up to or whatever. Tell someone, tell someone that you trust. Mm. Connect with the resources that are out there. They're, you know, as, as we've, over the last, 25 years, we have gotten so much better about at least having the beginnings of some rudimentary services to help people who have been um, sexually abused or sexually assaulted. Make Mm -hmm. use of them. Mm -hmm. Were you afraid that no one would believe you? Was that part of the reason why you didn't tell your friends? I mean, your parents, you explained that they were kind of pushing back when or accusing back to you, whatever it was. But were you ever afraid no one would believe you when you tell anyone? Um, I don't think that that was my fear. I don't think my fear was that no one would believe me. 
Um, I, I think a lot of it really is that like, I really felt like I was, you know, that I was going to be like, uh, that my experience was going to be diminished that it was like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, whatever. But you were at a party and you were drinking. So what do you expect? Or, you know, or whatever that, that it wasn't mm-hmm. that, that I thought people would be like, no, you weren't mm-hmm. that I think where, um, you know, where m- my fear really lied was that it was going to be like, well, what did you, you know, the whole idea of like, well, what were you wearing or whatever? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, and, and we have a lot more dialogue about that out in the open now about like, what, like what difference does it make what I was wearing? That doesn't give someone the right to, to, to violate me. Um, mm-hmm. That, so we didn't have any of those discussions going on or whatever. And so I, I really think it was this, that idea of like being blamed for this happening to myself. I mean, I don't know. I'm speaking now as a, you know, that was 30 years ago this year. So it's like, you know, uh, you know, trying to, trying to really, really tap into, um, you know, what I, how I was thinking when I was a, you know, a 14 year old is, you know, some of this is projecting backwards on that, you know, but I, but I really think like a lot of it was really just being afraid that I was going to be blamed for, and that I was going to be in trouble. I was afraid I was, I, I think that's really like, I was afraid I was going to be in trouble. I've been grounded my whole life for not doing my homework. Like, <laughs> like so it was like, I, re- I think I was real. I was afraid that I was going to be in trouble, you know, like it's something and not even, not even necessarily like on some sort of like bigger level. I was like, I don't want to be grounded. Like, I don't want to be grounded. I don't want to be in trouble for this. Like, I don't want to deal with all of the, the stuff that comes along with this. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be grounded. I don't want to have to answer for it. I don't want to have to talk about where I was or whatever. Um, you know, and I, but I didn't know that it would have such catastrophic outcomes for not talking about it. I had no idea that it would have been much better to have been grounded for a little bit or whatever and gotten access to the kinds of help that I actually needed than not be grounded (laughs) and then you know have this whole lifetime of of dealing and trying to heal from this did you ever see see professional coaching or was it more of a self-healing effort um i as um after i had uh had my son i i've gone in and out of different kinds of counseling and coaching and you know or you know whatever it is um different different kinds and different times and um, some of it is like when I've reached sort of an acute point of something that, that I don't know how to find out the information. Like one of the things, one of the times that I went to counseling, um, uh, I, I, it was like hyper practical where I was just like, I don't understand what reasonable boundaries even are. So I really need someone that I can come to and just be like, is this a reasonable boundary? because I don't know, cause I didn't grow up having, you know, reasonable boundaries communicated in a healthy way or whatever. So like, I didn't even know if things were reasonable. Like I, I totally bought like, okay, that's how you have a healthy relationship and develop healthy boundaries. But I didn't know what reasonable boundaries were. And so it was like stuff like, is it reasonable for me to expect my five-year-old to make their bed? And, you know, and the, the counselor was like, well, yes, but you have to let them make it as a five-year-old and not expect them to make it as an adult would. 
And it was like, oh, okay, like that makes sense. Like that's so useful to me, which, you know, I guess a lot of other people probably just inherently know, but I had no idea. Like I didn't understand, like, is it, you know, and and that idea of like, is it reasonable for me to say, hey, can you, you know, like, can you go ahead and fix X, Y, or Z? And I'm, and if I, if I ask you, um, you know, I'm going to give you like three months and if it's not done, then I'm going to, you know, just see if I can get a professional or whatever to, to fix it or whatever. Like, is that reasonable or is that not a reasonable amount? Like what is like, is three weeks reasonable? Six months? Like, you know, like, yeah, so yeah. I, I needed like hyper practical sort of information about boundary setting because I understood that it was something, a skill that I was woefully lacking that mm-hmm. I had to intentionally practice, but I didn't understand like the, the, the parameters for what, that entailed, you know, like I didn't, I didn't understand. So that was like, uh, that was several months of counseling was really about boundary setting right. and really yeah. focused on some of the more like practical senses of, of boundary setting. But also, you know, I've had like some talk, you know, like talk therapy and psychotherapy and stuff just to, you know, some of it was, I uh, had the behavioral cognitive therapy uh, to help deal with uh, the PTSD that I would have. Mm. Um, some of it was learning how to, you know, was help identifying uh when i was in uh like a triggered moment or whatever like learning to identify like okay like i'm freaking out because i've got three kids under the age of you know six and like my house is a mess and like but i'm not responding with the appropriate amount of (laughs) of of urgency about that like it's terrible and all that stuff, but I'm like, I'm really responding with an emotional response that is from way long ago. And that is not in correlation with what's happening in present reality. And so like having, um, going through the process and going through counseling of trying to help identify, um, okay, like I'm not responding to what's present right now. I am responding to like past trauma and not what I'm struggling with right now Mm -hmm. and learning how to be like, okay, um, all right. Now I just yelled at you for, <laughs> yeah, I just like freaked out about that, but it's like, okay. Oh shoot. Like, all right. I, you know, man, I messed that up. like I'm not really, I'm not really responding to this right now. And, you know, learning better skills to minimize some of the impact of responding, you know, trauma driven out of stuff. And, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, I don't know. I don't even know. It's, it's, I can't even imagine what life is like for people who do not have brains that are wired like mine. Like mm-hmm. they're, you know, like I can't, I don't understand what it must be like to never like be depressed. Like I can't, like there are days, there are big chunks of time in my life where I literally have to live sort of hour to hour and day to day, like just insist like, today's a day you stay alive. This hour is a day that you stay alive. That just, you know, it's like the way that my, my, my brain has developed and has grown that it's like, there are very acute times for me where I still intensely struggle and intensely, like I have got to commit hour to hour to just simply staying alive. Like I can't imagine what it would be like to have a brain that's wired where you don't have to work to stay alive. Like, I can't imagine that. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's just so far outside of my, of my reality yeah. that I can't imagine what that must be like. If you had a chance to meet the two men who did this to you, what would you tell them? 
I think I would, um, at this point, um, you know, I would, I would, I would, I would like to communicate to them the effect that their actions have had. Mm. Um, both traumatically and all of the people that I hurt, but also that, you know, this, the immense amount of good that I don't, I would not have the intensity, intensity of, of desire of putting out as much good as I can into the world of undoing as much of the harm that I have done. And, um, if that had not happened to me, like, I don't know who I would have been, but I would not be this person. And this person is someone who, you know, is just so passionately trying to live a life that has meaning and to, you know, help as many people in my sphere of influence feel deeply and truly loved as I possibly can. And I don't know that I, I don't think that I would have had the same level of commitment had their, had they not chosen to violate me. Mm. So I would like to communicate both of those things um, to them and just, you know, I mean, and, and to offer forgiveness, mm-hmm. you know, like you don't, you don't even, you probably don't even, uh, you don't even know the harm that you caused. Mm-hmm. Like you don't understand. And that, you know, that, that I think that that's one of the things that, um, that we do really bad at when uh, we utilize violence in our lives um, but we don't understand that it's not just towards that one person. It's like their actions now, um, everyone that I encounter for the rest of my life are affected by their actions. Mm-hmm. Everyone. And therefore, everyone, you know, the lives that touch the lives of the people that I touch are affected. And it's like, that's something that I would like to, to communicate to them as well. But also just that, you know, that I forgive them. That I, you know, like... I understand that they, you know, and I, because I deeply understand that they almost definitely have their own trauma that they're dealing with, that they have their own pile of crap that was handed on to them, that mm-hmm. you don't go around, you know, raping people and, um, you know, inflicting violence on other people because everything has been awesome in your life, that you get there because you are, you feel fundamentally broken and, and that, you know, and just to extend, you know, that compassion towards them that it's like, you know, like, and if you want, if you're in a place where you haven't dealt with that or need help dealing with what you have done that, you know, I can help connect you with that help. You're a wonderful person. Definitely. <laughs> Not all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Gets me when the, when the toddler's refusing to nap. <laughs> it, it, it takes a lot to, to yeah, have this kind of mindset. So let's talk about the the good that you're doing right now. So you're working with several organizations. You're helping people to disengage from um, extremist organizations. So um, talk a little bit about that. How does the process work? If, if or in the first place, if someone wants to disengage, um, what are the steps to take, and but um, then what's the process that follows after that? Well, I'm, I'm currently working with uh, Christian Picciolini, who you also interviewed at uh, Free Radicals Project. And uh, I also work with the Against Violence and Extremism Network, who's uh, affiliated with uh, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, a think tank out of London. Um, and one of the things that I'm most passionate about working on and working towards is actually building preventative programming. 
Um, I just feel like we prepare our children for all kinds of stuff that if they're, you know, if they're, if they talk to strangers or if there's fire or all kinds of stuff that that we we tell them what to do and what to look for. Um, And so the idea that we are not teaching our children um, what it looks like to be groomed and recruited into um, all kinds of like hate and violence based movements or whatever, which are all, which are also some of the same tactics that are used by people who are grooming people for um, human trafficking. Uh, interestingly, okay. that you're talking about the same target audience for all kinds of recruitment into all sorts of bad outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, that building the prog- programming to just be like, hey, this is what it looks like. Here's some resiliency. Like, let's talk about what it entails to help build communities where um, this is is you know where these communities and individuals are more highly inoculated against. Light, lives of violence being attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, so working towards uh, building like better uh, preventative programming and, and, you know, where it's like, I, I believe with all of my heart um, that we have got to talk to our children about all of the really hard things. And that instead of seeing it as somehow stealing their innocence, trust that they're going to take what they're ready to take and view it as protecting more people's innocence for a much longer period of time that I feel like we have got to like, because when you start talking about ideas of, you know, of having a voice in your own life and how, you know, people are going to use uh, the things that you're struggling with um, as, you know, that they're going to try to provide you with what looks like this really sort of idyllic way out or whatever that, um, you know, teaching that kind of stuff. And if you start talking about race and hate and violence and utilizing violence as a solution to children from when they're very young, you're already going to have that vocabulary. You're already going to have it as a regular part of your conversation as they get older. It's already going to be, you know, part of what they know and what they're taking away from you um, as, you know, as an adult in their life. If you start from really young, they'll grow up. Just It'll be something that you just regularly talk about. So in what way would you, if you have children at a certain age, so what would be the age that you start talking about these things and how would you um, introduce them to these topics? Um, well, I mean, I would start talking about them at, you know, I mean, from when they're babies and when they're, you know, I mean, when, when do you start talking to children about being taken by strangers? You know, that, and that's, you know, part of it is that dynamic, like, I don't want to make you afraid of people. I want you to like inherently sort of like trust people or whatever, but I do want you to understand how to be, how to be safe, that we start those conversations when people are really young Mm -hmm. and we maybe need to have a more intentional um, set of conversations with our children about how violence is used. And in America in particular, we have, we need to start intentionally speak as particularly as white people. We have a huge responsibility to begin talking to our children about race from really, really young, really young, two, three, whatever, like talking about it and talking about, you know, the difference, you know, the difference uh, is of experiences within, you know, one culture, uh, 
in terms of, of race, because that we, we as white people have a very serious responsibility to work, to dismantle the system that we've set up, that it's our responsibility. It's not people of color's responsibility. It's our responsibility to begin to tear that down. Um, start talking about that from very young because it's everywhere. And so heightening your awareness, you know, from an individual perspective, like heightening your awareness and educating yourself about white privilege and what it looks like and how it manifests and, um, you know, and how that plays out inside and in our day-to-day lives or whatever. And just talking about it. I mean, I talk, I've talked to my kids from when they were really, really young about marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it's like, Hey, try to identify what cereal do you most want? And they'll be like this one. I'm like, do you notice how you pointed right at it that it's at your eye level? Mm-hmm. And it's got all your favorite characters on it from all your favorite movies. Why do you think that is? And we've like, I've made this very intentional so that they understand like you're being marketed to like, like they're trying to get your dollars. And it's the reason. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so like they've grown up and they're not, they're like, you know, they're, they're not hyper materialistic and they like, they're like, Oh yeah. And like, whatever, you know, that like they're not, they're not driven by brand the same way that a lot of other people, their ages are because we've made this intentional practice of like, Hey, look at where stuff is placed look. Oh, you know, there, there's that Coke can in that movie facing right at you. See that product placement or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So just simply by talking about it, it doesn't even need to be some sort of like intense, like terrible thing that if you are watching TV and you're like, Oh, wow, look at that. Like those white people are depicted that way. And look at how that black person is depicted in this show that that person is depicted as, or like, you know, the villains in, um, in law and order or whatever. It's like, you know, like let's tally up how many are people of color, how many are, you know, like how are these people depicted? How do we depict people in the media? Even just making it something like that, where it's like, it sets the sort of tone for questioning. Now be prepared because it ends up with, te- you end up with teenagers who are questioning everything. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an issue. I mean, so I'll, get ready. <laughs> also part of the internet culture. Um, you mentioned but it's worth it. forms habits. And yes. if that gets the thing nowadays with the internet and the communication, the internet, it's so easy to fall, you know, fall for this kind of hate speech in whatever form it may appear um, because you don't even recognize it as such. Yes. And so making it just an intentionality of talking about that and talking about how truth is manipulated and, and stuff like that. And for me, like, I think that talking about that is just part of what you talk about from very young is super worthwhile. I think more targeted um, preventative programming would be very well placed around early adolescence. So 11, 12, 13, Mm -hmm. um, right in there. And some of the things that I think would actually be really helpful would be uh, for uh, school systems to have a day every year where, you know, particular age kids are bussed from all over and they have to actually sit down together. And it would be great if you could get private schools in on this as well, where you sit together and you have um, like a reflective structured dialogue with your peers and there's, you know, somebody who's like trained a mentor at the table to help facilitate this structured dialogue. So not just like a free for all, like it's a, you know, a structured dialogue. Mm -hmm. Um, 
with people that are your same age, but are potentially essentially unlike you. So completely different demographics, because in America, essentially schools are self-segregated. Now we talk about, you know, segregation being over and everything, but it, that's not the way that it's played out. And most school districts are actually highly segregated because mm-hmm. it's based on where you live. And so where you live is usually really, you know, it's not super economically diverse and mm-hmm. it's not super diverse, you know, like in terms of the racial makeup of people. Um, So I think it would be really, really useful to have an experience where you have an intentional, at least time where you have to listen to somebody who comes from a really different demographic from you. That um, it might not, you know, it's not going to totally solve the problem Um, but you know, taking that experience like, Oh, you know, I've been in this like super duper privileged school my whole life. And I just sat there and, you know, somebody that, you know, that I was, is supposed to be from this neighborhood where it's all gangsters and everything. Mm -hmm. Just talk to me about like their mom and like, you know, and how their mom's been raising them because their dad died and, you know, or whatever, and her, his brother's in jail. And it's like, you have this humanizing experience that it's, it takes, it takes somebody from just being an idea or a set of ideas and gives you an experience of them as a human. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that would be something that would be just so, I mean, amazingly helpful in so many ways, this idea of like a commitment to like learning how to have conversations. To open a dialogue between people. Learning how to listen to points of view other than our own. Yeah. yeah. You know, some, something like that. So I think more targeted and very specific, more specific, like, hey, you know, do you want to be the hero of your own life? Do you, are you looking for meaning? Are you afraid that you like your future isn't going to be, you know, be what you thought it was? Those are the kinds of targeting ideas that um, people seeking to do them harm are going to use. That's the same draw into, um, you know, white supremacy, the, the alt-right, the, you know, the, the extreme far left can utilize those same arguments. Human traffickers can use those arguments. That it's like we should, in my opinion, that focusing on that, like, early adolescent stage and giving them, like, at least, you know, at least the information. Like, you know, you can't make people use the information that you give them. But it's like, man, like, can we at least, like, make sure that they have that, that yeah. information to, to potentially utilize, so if, um, if that it, that would be a good age, offered, I think, almost, to begin. Yeah. If your reality is offered, that's almost too good to be true, then at least question it to some degree. Yes. Yes. Fact check that. <laughs> yes. Which is really like, well, can we just like teach everybody fact check, fact check everything ever. <laughs> so that. if someone wants to disengage and um, they contact your organization, so uh, what are the steps to take someone out of that reality that they're in? Very, very often we're contacted not by, not by an individual, but by somebody who is concerned about that individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, there's a point in which, uh, like I mentioned earlier, where people are sort of untouchable, they're sort of unreachable that, um, that they're so entrenched and invested in their ideology that, you know, it's like, you, there's, you can't just be like, oh, hi, I'm, you know, I'm an ex-neo-Nazi too. Come on out. <laughs> um, but what can happen is that you can try to begin a dialogue with them. 
Um, and this is true for, you know, wherever, wherever people are at. The very first thing is to build trust with somebody. Um, and that is oftentimes the longest part of the disengagement process. It's like, hey, we're just going to have conversations and I'm not going to hold judgment for you because I've been there. Like, I'm not going to be, ju- I'm not going to hold judgment for this ideology that you're spewing, even though I disagree with it. And I can communicate like, Hey, I don't, you know, I don't just, I don't agree with that at all. Um, that, uh, I can just, you know, we're, we're listening, listening more than we talk. And what we're listening for in particular is the story behind the story. We're listening for those things that got this person to where they are now. And then after we've, you know, after we've established trust and, you know, and have been, been able to begin to identify, then we can begin to start to facilitate connection between that person and the resources that they need in order to like, you know, start, you know, start making some, because a lot of times too, the, you know, it's like, well, you know, so-and-so, whatever group of people like, you know, took my jobs or whatever. It's like, okay, well, like what, um, you know, like what, what jobs were you doing? And they're like, well, you know, just the jobs. And I'm just like, okay, well, what are you qualified to do? Nothing. I dropped out of high school. Okay. Well, can we maybe like talk about getting, you know, getting a GED or something like, because that will be one step in accessing more work for you. Because what I'm hearing is that you're really afraid of not being able to provide for your family, you know, or yourself or whatever. Like what I'm hearing you say is that you're afraid that you, you're not going to have access to, to work or, you know, to, to a job that's enough to, to pay your bills. And usually people are like, Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, if you can cut through all the bullshit like, and get to like, well, what are you actually afraid of? What are you actually, what, what is this? What is the real fundamental root of this? That then you can begin addressing some of, the, the actual needs that they have instead of just continuing to argue and bicker about, you know, ideology or, you know, or whatever. It's like, okay, well, whatever. I'm not, you have that, you have all that stuff that you're doing and I can't stop you from that. Um, but I can go here and I can help you be able to, you know, begin to piece together the things and create an environment where it will be favorable for you to turn away and disengage and then be, you know, continue to make it more and more favorable to where you are willing to do the work of healing and rebuilding your life and get to a place where you can, you know, make amends for the the wrongs that you've done. So in a way it's very similar to uh, what your ex-boyfriend's mom did with you, uh, offering, offering you an alternative reality and giving you a structure to, to orient yourself. Yes. And then again, you know, it's like, you know, something that, that was, that I recognized has so much value for what she did for me was that tangible connection that she wasn't just like, you should go to school and you should take your, you know, that she was like, you should go to school and I'm going to physically drive you to where those resources are. You know, that wasn't just like, you should do all these things. You should have these programs. It's like, okay, but I'm going to figure out how to get you to those resources. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I have taken with me wholeheartedly in everything that, that I do. It's like, it's not enough for me to just wish you the best. Like I've got to try to, with everything I can facilitate the means 
to provide for you to get from where you are to the resources that you need. Now the work still has to be yours. You know, it's much like recovery from, you know, alcohol or drug addiction. It's got to be your work that you're choosing to do, but I sure as heck can do everything in my power to make that as easy as possible because it's going to be really hard. So it's like, if I can make some of the details easier, you know, it's like, then you're freed up to work on a lot of the harder stuff that's going to happen. Okay. So how, how can uh, people reach out to you and your organization, um, the Free Radicals? Yeah, you can find us on uh, freeradicals.org and I'm Shannon at freeradicals.org. Um, uh, you can send us an email. There's a you know a helpline on there. Um, hopefully soon uh, we will actually have a better helpline even up and running. Uh to, to respond to, but for now you can, uh, you know, find, and you can always just Google, you know, Shannon Martinez, Nazi. There's also, there's, there's a Shannon Martinez who's like a vegan chef. So I'm sorry that, that I'm compromising some of your amazing <laughs> creative food and all of the amazing work that you do. Shannon Martinez, vegan chef with <laughs> Shannon Martinez. Ex neo Nazi, um, but you can also just Google me and find me that way, and that will you know eventually lead you to uh, a way to connect with me. Yeah. Uh, and since wow, it's important to mention that if someone reaches out to you, that information is always being uh, handled privately, so they don't need to be. It's afraid. always confidential. Yeah. Yes, it is always and let the only time that it is not is that if there is um, a threat of imminent uh, violence mm -hmm. uh, to other people or uh, to yourself. That that is uh, that confidentiality is uh, set aside for those two, um, for those two reasons. But those are the only two. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Um, Jen, I know you got seven kids waiting, so <laughs> I just want to ask you two last questions that I ask everyone I'm talking with. Um, and the first question is: This is a series of interviews with extraordinary people, so people who um, have a story and have a mission in life that inspires other people, that that makes this world a better place, uh, like like you do. Um, who would you consider an extraordinary person that I might even talk to next? Um, I am one of the most extraordinary people with whom I have spoken um, and gotten to know over this last year is uh, a woman named Shanti Hodges. Um, and she is the founder of an organization called Hike It Baby, um, which encourages families to get outside with their babies and kids and get hit the road and get out on the trail with them to get them out in nature, um, building nature connection and healing, you know, healing some of our generational woes through um, intentionally getting out on the trail. It grew from her stumbling across some people uh, on a trail uh, when her son was just a few weeks old asked and her asking for help to put him in the carrier that, that mm -hmm. she was wearing him in to now a worldwide movement. There's uh, just, just a crazy amount of hikes hosted all throughout the world every week. Um, and it's grown into this, you know, worldwide movement of uh, getting people uh, outside and, and on the trail. And just, you know, somebody's, she's somebody who's like passion for what she's doing and working on and her commitment to just relentlessly working to, because she can see the, the, the good that is coming um, and the value is just something that I admire so deeply and the, just the level of 
immense goodness that her choice to make this, to create this movement, um, as she saw that it was a need that a lot of people have, like that it has, I mean, it has impacted my life for sure in the way that I have been able to uh, try to manage and deal with, you know, yet another baby <laughs> when I thought I couldn't have any more babies um, <laughs> to just to families all over, you know, all over the world. Um, and I can't help but think that the kids who are the real recipients of uh, the greatest assets of this movement uh, are going to grow up just to to feel as you know as, again like a sense of community and a sense of purpose and a sense of like place in the world because uh, you know because their parents were committed to making sure that they got outside and get out in nature and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she's somebody that, I mean, I just, I, it's, I so admire her. Um, I wish I had like even just a fraction of the energy that she, that she has. Well, I'm sure with seven kids, what you don't lack is energy. <laughs> I still don't know where you're <laughs> But I'll do my best to reach out to her and uh, try to get her on the show. So thank you very much for that um, introduction. And uh, my last question I always ask is, um, to anyone who's watching or listening, what's your, your final message? What's the message that's closest to your heart? I would like everyone to walk away believing that people can fundamentally change. Um, that it is worth investing in people. That um, if I with all of my flaws and shortcomings and uh, immense defects of character is able to enact fundamental change in my life. That it is something that we can all do. And even Mm. though that might be scary because that might mean that you have work to do, that you can do it, but also that it is worth investing in when you see people who are just immersed in the worst things listen for the stories behind their stories and believe that they are capable and have the capacity for immense change and the corollary to that in the times that we live in the other thing that i feel like it's really important right now is for us to not lose hope that because I know that fundamental change is possible because that's my life, um, that we have got to remain hopeful even in the face of so many things that would steal that from us, that there's billions of dollars invested in making us hopeless because Mm -hmm. a hopeful people is a powerful people. A hopeful people can move mountains because we believe mountains can be moved. And so whatever comes our way, so over the next, you know, weeks, days, months, years, to not lose hope, that hope is the most powerful weapon that we have. Um, and and it, is, it will be the thing that brings us to the world that we all hope to be living in and for our children and our, you know, many generations to come to, to live in. Shannon Martinez, thank you for your openness and thank you for <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching. And in a few seconds, you'll hear about the extraordinary person that I'm going to talk to in my next conversation. But before that, I need to ask you for your help. See, finding people who inspire and motivate you to make a change, that's what's most important to me. 
But to connect you with these amazing people and to bring you conversations that you will not find anywhere else, I need you to become a part of our journey. So please get involved and leave a comment below with your own questions and maybe even tell me who I should talk to next. And if you know anyone who might like this conversation, then please share it because I'm sure that they will like it too and it will help to grow this channel and to make an impact together. And by the way, on my website, you will find all current and upcoming episodes, including show notes and transcripts, background info, books and websites of my guests, podcast links, and much more. And once you become an email subscriber, there is always some exclusive content. So don't forget to sign up and I'll see you in the next conversation. In the next episode, Rob talks to Timothy Ray Brown. In 1995, Timothy received a diagnosis that would change his life forever. He tested positive for HIV. In 2006, tragedy struck again in the form of leukemia. But what seemed to be a cruel twist of fate turned out to be an extraordinary case of fortune. Timothy's leukemia treatment not only cured him of cancer, but it also cured him of HIV. He entered the medical history books as the Berlin patient, the only person on this planet who has successfully been healed from the deadly disease. Rob and Timothy talk about his incredible medical journey, what living with HIV meant for him, his work as an advocate against the disease, and much more. Join the conversation now.